This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's legal to smoke pot in this state, but not to drive under its influence. For that, you can go to jail. But science hasn't caught up to the law. So far, there's no reliable, readily available device that can distinguish between someone who's been driving under the influence and someone who's sober. Researchers and companies, some of them in Colorado, are trying to fill that gap. In the meantime, a course taught in Colorado is one of the most thorough DUI trainings cops can take. Independent science reporter Ray Allen Bichelle, formerly of NPR, visited that class and has reported on scientists' efforts to develop something more reliable. And hi, Ray Allen. Hey. Uh, how big a problem, first off, is marijuana DUI in Colorado? It can be hard to come by solid numbers, but according to data from the Colorado Department of Transportation, the number of deaths due to car crashes involving marijuana, and here I have to be careful about how I word things, has risen since legalization. So in 2016, 51 people died in crashes that involved drivers whose blood contained a certain level of THC, the main chemical that actually makes you high. Yeah. Um, it's important to note the blood test can be misleading and the drivers might have also tested positive for alcohol or other drugs. Um, so even though it's only 8% of all crash fatalities in 2016 that fall into this category, CDOT does think it's concerning enough to allocate almost a million dollars, uh, all from marijuana tax revenue, to educate the public about the danger of driving while high. And in Colorado, I'll say that it's legal to have marijuana paraphernalia in the car. Uh, the car can even smell like pot, but right. um, it's not legal to drive impaired. Right. Just like cannabis. it's not legal to drive drunk. It's not legal to drive impaired from any sort of cannabis product. So why is it so hard to find out chemically if a person is driving while high? The base of the issue is it's a different chemical. Um, I think we're all familiar with alcohol. Um, when you drink alcohol, it's water soluble and we're mostly water. So it distributes pretty evenly over your body. Huh. You can be pretty sure that the amount of alcohol you see in someone's blood is pretty reflective of what's going on in their brain. Um, THC, which is, um, let me be careful, I get the pronunciation right here, tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the main um, active ingredient that makes a person high um, in cannabis products. That one's totally different. It dissolves in fat. And so it ends up hiding out in different parts of the body. And it can linger in different people in different ways, um, depending on things like gender, body composition, uh, frequency of use. Yeah, we, like we hear people all the time saying, uh, I use, but I don't, you know, get very high or feel very high. So lots of different factors there. There's a law here in Colorado that says if you have more than a certain amount of THC in your blood, though, you're going to jail. So that seems quite specific. Right, right. The law here in Colorado and a few other states says if you have above five nanograms of active THC per milliliter of whole blood, that means you are probably under the influence. Um, but the key word here is probably. Mm. Um, again, this isn't like alcohol, where if your blood has more than 0.08%, you're considered intoxicated. Uh, no more evidence is needed in that case. Um, here, the five nanogram thing is considered to show presumed impairment. Um, so the blood test is considered an important measure, but it isn't definitive, and it's also kind of iffy. Um, it takes a while to do. You can't just draw blood on the side of the road. It's invasive. And then, again, it doesn't give you a clear answer about whether a person was impaired or not while they were driving. 
you spoke to scientists who thought, in fact, that the threshold is quite arbitrary uh, where the law set it. And you visited one of the places where cops learn to do roadside tests for drivers that they think are impaired. These aren't uh, blood tests. These are cognitive tests. Right, right. Um, it was actually pretty funny. I, I enjoyed this part of the reporting for sure. Um, the class happened in a hotel in Denver. Uh, it takes two days. About a dozen cops showed up and took their seats in front of some very important class reading, Dope Magazine, the 420 issue. Uh, and their first assignment was to visit dispensaries. So the idea was for them to get a sense of what pot products are out there, what they look like, what they smell like. Um, I followed a couple Colorado State Patrol officers, um, A.J. Tarantino and Philip Gurley, to one dispensary called Rocky Mountain High. Your sour gummies here, that's 100 milligrams. So that's 10 doses for $20. It means a dose is like two bucks. It's like a PBR. Okay, so that's to get them familiar with that world. What happened next? So after exploring the options, and I do remember one guy said, wow, this is like Baskin Robbins when he was standing in front of a display of chocolates. Um, After that, the cops came back to the hotel to listen to a presentation. And I went with a group of volunteers who were tasked with getting super high in an RV in the parking lot. Um, They had this big tub of products to choose from, joints, edibles, vape pens, you name it. What should I do? I know, there's so many choices. I think I I have to take a shot. Sorry, I drank all that. I love it. Oh, it's gone? (laughs) I chugged it. She's like, what shot? Wow, you're going to be there. What's the point? (laughs) The point is for cops to learn how to identify who is impaired and who isn't. um, Using roadside sobriety tests, just like how they would in real life. Um, On the side of the road, if they pulled someone over for swerving or for driving super low, erratic behavior that they think indicates the person might be impaired. Um, The sobriety test involves things like close your eyes and open them when you think 30 seconds has passed. So estimating time properly, following directions, like walk nine steps, toe to heel, then turn around. Um, One weird one is checking to see how well your eyes can follow an object. A lot of the times people who are impaired, they can't cross their eyes. Um, Here's a little bit of what it sounds like. All right. Could you go ahead and uh, recite the alphabet A to Z without singing it, please? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y N Z. Okay. Thank you. So, if you had a dollar seventy-five in quarters, how many quarters would you have? Seven. Okay. That's quick. Yeah. Very quick. Yeah. How about how about how about counting backwards from fifty-seven to forty-three? 57, 56, 55, 54, 53, 52, 51, 50. I'm not sure I could do the quarter thing sober, Rayelle. <laughs> Um, So this course, it's run by a Colorado lawyer named Chris Halser. Um, It's considered one of the most thorough marijuana DUI trainings an officer can get right now, Um, so much so that the Colorado Department of Transportation will reimburse agencies to send certain officers to attend the class. And I heard apparently the Canadian Mounties even came to scope it out once. I see an international audience potentially. But some people are not satisfied with this kind of training. Right. Some argue it's too subjective, that it depends too much on one officer's opinion. And I did get a chance to see that firsthand. Um, 
Some volunteers totally bombed the test. It was obvious that had they been driving, they would have been arrested for being impaired. Um, but others were trickier, even if they'd smoked just as much as the last person. Hmm. Um, so, for example, I asked officers if they would arrest Sharika Clark, a volunteer who did well on some parts of the test, but not great on others. Yes. Boy, yeah, you're tough. I don't know if I would have or not, to be honest with you. Um, I'd have been with him. I'd probably, I probably would and then have a DRE. Just rescreen it, rescreen it. But, yeah. So this is one of those subjective areas. Just so you know, when one officer says have a DRE rescreen it, he means have a drug recognition expert do sobriety testing again. Um, those are officers who've gone through a lot of extra drug training. Um, but anyway, you can hear the officers making different decisions, yeah. even though they've just watched the same person do the same test. And some people are just not OK with that uncertainty, that subjectivity. Right. One of those people is Tara Lovestead, a chemical engineer. It's too subjective. I'm not comfortable with that. The public, I don't think, is comfortable with that. It's setting the standard for determining whether or not somebody has done something wrong. Lovesid works at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder. Um, you might know of them as the people with the super precise clocks. Yeah, that's where the atomic clock is, right? fancy lasers, right. Um, but they also happen to have a forensic science group. And that includes people like Lovestead who are working on this very problem. And are they marijuana. close to having a device ready that could be deployed more easily? So the scientists at NIST don't develop commercial devices. Okay. They're the ones who do the nitty-gritty basic research, you know, setting the standards. Um, stuff like how to trap the chemicals, how to keep them for a while as evidence. Um, and then the really basic stuff like figuring out the fundamental physical properties of a chemical like THC. Um, the whole idea is that companies can then use the work that they do to create reliable devices. Um, I should mention a number of companies, one called Hound Labs, another called Cannabis Technologies, they have prototypes, but they're still in the testing phase. Um, and there is another device that California law enforcement recently started using. Hmm. It detects the presence of THC in saliva, but not someone's impairment. So, so far, there is still no device that can definitively say, yes, this person is impaired from pot. Um, one thing that I thought was funny when I visited Lovestead's lab is that even though she works in Boulder, which has, I don't know, a couple dozen dispensaries, she's a federal employee. And under federal law, um, pot is just as illegal and dangerous and hard to get a hold of as heroin. Right. So how do you get a hold of it as a researcher, you know, connected with the feds? They have to jump through a lot of bureaucratic hoops to get some really teeny tiny jars of samples. Um, then they lock them in a special room and only two people have access. Um, marijuana used in federal research can only come from one place right now, a farm at the University of Mississippi. Um, although the Drug Enforcement Agency has said it would change that policy, but right now it's still all from Mississippi. Um Something that came up a lot in my reporting is that because of federal laws, it's really hard to research marijuana, which means there isn't a lot known about it. And it also means that laws aren't always based on science. And I think it's just one of the many examples of where there's a mismatch between policy and science. And you're seeing that in this measuring of marijuana DUI. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Independent science reporter Ray Ellen Bichelle formerly of NPR, on detecting drivers under the influence of marijuana. 
There's a deadline in Washington, D.C. next week that could dramatically change the lives of some young people. Many are students at Metropolitan State University of Denver. You see, 10 states are threatening to sue the federal government if President Trump doesn't eliminate an Obama-era immigration policy. This policy allows people brought illegally to the United States as children to stay in the country. And Metro State in Denver has hundreds of these DACA students. The school's new president, Janine Davidson, joins me. She was formerly undersecretary of the Navy, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. So the deadline that we referred to is next Tuesday, September 5th. The Trump administration is reportedly asking the state attorneys general for a bit more time. But what concerns you most about the looming deadline and its potential impact on these DACA students at Metro? Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's it's moderately encouraging that he's taking a little time to think about this. You're saying that the administration the, the president, is president. That's right. Um, but let's be clear. Uh, MSU Denver is 100 percent committed to these uh, Dreamer students. We have close to 300 of them. And just the discussion that's been happening nationally has generated so much anxiety among this population. And so as a university president, and uh, I'm very concerned about that, um, we uh, are trying to make sure that we have the wraparound services that we need for these students, um, if they come in for counseling, if they want to talk, and that's already happening on campus. So we are, we're sort of braced um, for whatever decision might come down, but we're already being affected just by the conversation. That is to say the psychology of the Right. students. Why are you 100% committed to them? Help me understand your thinking there. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the leadership that MSU Denver and Colorado um, displayed in making sure that these students have a, a chance um, in our system was incredibly progressive and, and was the right move. I mean, I think morally and ethically, it's the right thing to do to support these students. Let me, let me say that before the creation of DACA, a Metro State was quite proactive in allowing undocumented students to attend the university, uh, even creating special tuition mm-hmm. rates, mm-hmm. despite objections from the state legislature and then Attorney General John Southers. That's correct. Um, the previous president, Stephen Jordan, along with our board, were incredibly progressive and bold in in ensuring that they could protect these students. And and like I said, I mean for for many of us it it is sort of a it is a moral and an ethical. It's the right thing to do. These students came here as kids um, through no fault of their own whatever their status was. Um, if you talk to them, it is amazingly inspiring. I mean, they they grew up, they, you know, right alongside playing soccer, going to school with all their other American kids. And then somewhere along the line, somebody said, oh, and by the way, you can't do all the same things. You can't get a social security number. You can't get a job. You can't play in-state tuition. And now what are we going to do? So I think it's important that we that we um, honor these kids that are trying to make it in our country and be productive members of our society. Trying to seek an education at That's MSU right. Denver. Yeah. How would you respond to people who think it's wrong for a college or university to offer an education to people who are not legally in the country and that doing so is something of a magnet or an encouragement to illegal immigration? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I hear that argument a lot, but I just I just don't think that it that it that it reflects an you know, enough compassion for, for the plight of these students. It's, it's not their fault. This is where they are um, on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, also, I mean, the, it, 
their success speaks for themselves. I mean, you know, giving them a, a chance at, at education, giving them a path to citizenship, um, it, it's not, not only does it help them and their families and their future, it helps Colorado, it helps the nation. And so, it, you know, I, there are some people that are never going to agree. And um, that's, that's just where we are. <laughs> is, is what I hear you saying, they're here, they might as well be educated? Well, at a minimum, you could uh-huh. say it that way. Um, they're here, they're eager, they're ready, and um, that's what we exist for. Do they tend to be successful? Is that tracked? Um, a- anecdotally, it definitely. I mean, I don't have the statistics, but uh-huh. but um, the, 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 the students that we admit to MSU Denver, they've been in Colorado. Um, they have been in the high schools. They're, they're admitted to college. They, they're ready and they are good students and they go on to do great things. You have publicized an on-campus event in conjunction with this looming deadline. It's a resource fair for DACA students and families mm-hmm. uh, and other undocumented students not necessarily covered under that law. Uh, it'll include on-campus and community organizations. Is there some concern that, that ICE could show up to something like that, which you've publicized? Well, I I can't imagine that they've never come on our campus before. Uh-huh. So um, I can't imagine that they that they would do that. Let me say that uh, separate from the DACA issue, Metro has been striving in the last few years to become something called a Hispanic serving institution, which could potentially unlock millions in federal support. What's the status of that designation for Metro? Yeah. So Hispanic serving institution does allow a school like ours to uh, apply for fed- for lots of federal funding that that would not have previously been available to us. So we've been on track and we have just in the last couple weeks met the biggest milestone, which is in order to be a Hispanic serving institution, you have to have 25% of your student population self-identified as uh, Hispanic. And so we just got to like 26.1 a couple weeks ago. So that's a big hurdle. Um, There's one more hurdle associated with... um, with income levels that we're that we're also looking at, but um, we anticipate that sometime this year we will be a Hispanic serving institution. And do you have confidence that the federal government under the new administration will continue the program? Yeah, we're pretty confident. We haven't heard anything otherwise. Okay, right. And I want to just say one more thing about the Hispanic serving institution. Um, a lot of people don't really, I think, necessarily understand this. Yeah, but... why is money freed up <laughs> yeah. when you reach that that yeah. quarter threshold? So you know. Money can be freed up, but the the types of grants that we are we are eligible to apply for are grants that will help us across the entire student population, right? So, for instance, you could apply for a grant under the HSI status that will help you enhance your ability to um, bring in more transfer students and do that in a smooth, more streamlined way. Now, for for a place like MSU Denver. We have 56% of our students are transfer students. And so, you know, we need a lot of services to help those students move through. So that will help the entire university, all the kinds of things we do for all of our students. I suspect that number of transfers is also a reflection of how many people are moving here from other places and seeking an education. Not as much as you would think. Um, the the main, I mean, I think that's an issue across Colorado. Lots uh-huh. of people come into Colorado because, of course, Colorado is awesome. Why wouldn't you want to come to Colorado? Um, but, uh, we have always been a place, MSU Denver, where we have transfer students. So we're the kind of school that accommodates, you know, the zigzaggy life path that people have. Okay. Right. And so we have a, we have a lot you of have a new slogan. Janine Davidson. <laughs> yes. But a lot of people coming from the community colleges 
some of them coming from the bigger schools and then deciding they want to be in Denver and coming here. So You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the new president of Metropolitan State University of Denver. That's Janine Davidson. And you have a really interesting background. So I suppose one of the reasons that you found yourself looking for a job is uh, the November election. You uh, left as undersecretary of the Navy when the new administration took over. And uh, you've you've flown planes. You're a pilot. Why make the move into higher education? <laughs> well, actually, I already was in higher education. I made the move into higher education back in 1998 when I got out of the Air Force and I went back to graduate school. I got a Ph.D. I became a professor. Um, it was yeah, it was a zigzaggy career. <laughs> it's, it's reflected in your so, own life. Yes, so I was I was a professor at George Mason University when I was asked by the Obama administration to serve in the Pentagon for a few years. Got it. And how does it feel to be back in higher ed? Well, it's, at a moment, let me say, where um, in Colorado, funding for higher ed, though it has seen some modest increases, um, has been overall on something of a of a decline when you compare mm-hmm. it to the student population and student needs. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, being back in higher ed is is awesome. Of course, I love um, helping students. I love working with faculty. I love the complexity of the job. Um, being at a university campus and something and a place like MSU Denver is just it's an amazing opportunity. And I'm I'm thrilled to be here. And and it's Colorado. And like I said, who doesn't love to be in Colorado? Yes, you're quite a booster in this state. What's the biggest challenge you face in the new job? Yeah. So I think you, you hit it. Um, the biggest challenge is the funding. Um, higher ed across the country has been taking uh, – has is is in a different funding model. Um, it used to be something like 70% of, of your tuition as a student was covered by the state uh, in most states in America. Now the average is more like 25%. So that means that the students are now paying 70. <laughs> and so tuition has gone up. And this isn't just, in the, you know, we've, we've, we've been trying to make some strides here in Colorado. Um, but the but the trajectory over the last 20 years has been has been difficult. You know, one trend I'm seeing is public private partnerships. Gosh, mm-hmm. we hear, hear that mm-hmm. that term so much these days, but where universities might team up with businesses and industry, tailor their curricula to, you know, the needs of a satellite builder or something like that, and essentially build training programs and and maybe even factories Mm -hmm. uh, for certain products on campuses. What is the right balance between a university offering a liberal arts education Mm -hmm. and tailoring its curriculum to something that's really specific and pretty, you know, closely allied with business? Sure. Um, That's a great question. I, I, um, I can't speak for other like the larger research institutions, but an institution like MSU Denver is is uniquely poised to to take on this sort of a opportunity. And I think that MSU Denver is sort of leading the way here. Um, I mean, we need to be more workforce oriented. I mean, people are thinking now more and more because higher education is more and more expensive. You know, what is the ROI? What is our return on investment? And yeah. so this is this is the demand signal that's out there. Um, so one of the things MSU Denver did that I think is potentially scalable across other areas is in our aerospace engineering sciences program. I think you were sort of alluding to that, right? Um, my predecessor, uh, Dr. Jordan, you know, 
convened a group of industry leaders across Colorado in the aerospace and basically said, look, hey, what are you missing in terms of skill sets um, from the big universities and from the vocational? And what, what they learned was there was this sort of skill set in the middle that um, that that the employers wanted from our graduates. And so they cooperated together and came up with, helped develop, helped us, helped MSU develop the curriculum and literally helped them design the shape of the new engineering sciences, uh, advanced manufacturing building, so that the students would have a, a, a workforce plus educational experience. Um, partners like Lockheed Martin, um, have given the students internships. So I, I think it's a really good model for a lot of those types of career fields. It's not going to work everywhere. Um, I don't know philosophy or English, but, you know. But that in, in some of those applied fields, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned CU and CSU. Um, is it a, um, is that a, a tense relationship? Is that competitive? It's obviously a competitive relationship to, to some extent. But how do you see yourself in the sort of higher education ecosystem? I don't know how competitive we have to be. I think part of the thing is Colorado is booming and growing in population. Like you said, um, we have to work together to um, meet the needs of our of our emerging students. And so, I mean, I'm already talking to my counterparts at these institutions about, you know, how do we need to adapt together? How do we need to figure out? you know, what the MSU Denver student of the future is going to look like and what they're going to need compared to what is the CU Boulder student of the future look like and what they'll need. I mean, they're different institutions. I think that there are some who say in higher ed, there are too many duplicative programs. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're looking at the cost of higher ed, why do we have three institutions developing, you know, program X? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of a concern is that for you? Um, I'm not as concerned about that. I think you have to really look under the hood and see what's going on. So um, we will continue to evaluate to determine whether we're overlapped in a in a negative competitive way or overlapped in a way that meets the greater demand of Colorado. I mean, you may somebody may need to be in Denver and still want, you know, that kind of a education versus somebody that's up in Boulder. I want to say that public confidence in higher education seems to be waning in some segments of the population. So a survey by Pew Research earlier this summer found 58 percent of Republicans said college has a negative impact on the life uh, of folks in in the United States. What do you make of that? (laughs) Well, I don't I don't know what frame they're coming from, um, but I can't imagine a United States of America that did not have the robust um, higher education system we have. In fact, robust but expensive. Well, um, you know, some of the statistics are a little skewed. Um, I mean, it depends on where you go. MSU Denver is the least expensive place in Colorado. It is. It's the smartest choice you can make, in my personal opinion. It's a very smart choice. But let me say, come back to your other piece. Yesterday, we hosted Vicente Fox, former president of Mexico, on campus, and he uh, stood up at our reception and basically said, "Listen." America, you are leaders in the world. And one of the things that makes you great, this is his outside perspective, is your system of higher education. Everybody wants to come here. Everybody wants to copy the way you do it. So Americans who think that we're not doing it right, um, I don't know what they're comparing it to, because I think that... um, I think we do need to continue to adapt and make sure that we're um, innovating. But um, we have an amazing thing. It's what it what it's what um, ensures the American dream in this country. Uh, Janine Davidson, uh, thanks for being with us. I'm going to leave listeners with an interesting fact about you: that <laughs> um, you 
are the first woman to fly a tactical C-130. Well, yes, I am. (laughs) To to pilot that uh, gargantuan plane. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that there. There wasn't really a place to fit that in. I I did it. You know, that's all. I stood on the shoulders of many other women before me. So, uh, And now piloting something much bigger, which is an institution of higher education. Thanks so much. That's Shanine Davidson. She's the new president of Metropolitan State University of Denver, also former undersecretary of the U.S. Navy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When you touch something, say a steering wheel, little electrical impulses send a message to your brain about what you're feeling. Well, guess what? Bacteria have the same ability, as we learn in Beta Test, our coverage of scientific breakthroughs in Colorado. In Boulder, scientists have discovered that bacteria have a sense of touch, and their findings could help fight disease. Joel Kralj is an assistant professor of biology at CU who leads this research. And Joel, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. Let's start with the big picture here. So your study deals specifically with two types of bacteria. I understand E. coli and salmonella, which cause food poisoning, of course. Uh, What do your findings mean to, you know, the average eater concerned about those pathogens in terms of fighting them off? Right. So... The the big picture is that uh, our immune system is actually really good at dealing with threats. Um, but bacteria, it turns out, have a lot of systems for uh, both getting into our gut and then uh, understanding that they are on those cells. So um, what we showed is, is exactly like you said, that bacteria have this sense of touch. They can, they can sense the environment around them. And then we believe that they're doing that to change their lifestyle. So if they are is swimming around inside your gut, uh-huh. then they know where they are and maybe they want to start infecting and give you food poisoning. So you mentioned cells. That is to say the, yep. the cells in my body, essentially bacteria are able to sense what those cells might be and what, a- a- attach or attack? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So... Uh, a bacteria, like a salmonella, really wants to be inside your gut cell. That's uh, where it can div- uh, proliferate and grow, so it can um, have a lot of babies and then make you very sick. It's, um, so they have a desire to get into that cell. And so they've a lot evolved a lot of mechanisms to learn that they are close to um, your gut and that they should start infecting at that point. And going under the microscope now, in, in general terms, what you discovered is that bacteria have electrical activity going on inside them, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So for 50 years or so, people have known that uh, electrical impulses control our brain. So every neuron uh, in our brain communicates with these little electrical impulses that uh, can go at about a thousand times a second. And it's those electrical impulses that give rise to every thought and emotion and delicious food. Um, And so what we found is that bacteria actually have these little electrical impulses as well. So inside of a bacteria, they have uh, changing electrical fields, um, which we had assumed was uh, 
confer or uh, conserved to this really beautiful evolved organism of our brain. Um, but really, bacteria seem to have been doing this for billions of years. Is it wrong that this makes me respect bacteria a bit more? I I I, I even feel for them a little bit because there's there's it seems that they're sentient. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well. Uh, I don't know if we would say that we are they're sentient. So we okay. know that they have electrical impulses. Um, going from a bacteria dreaming to, you know, is, is a big step. <laughs> okay. But uh, you should definitely respect them more. Uh, one of the things that I have come to appreciate in studying bacteria is that they're not just these little tiny organisms. They're, uh, they're really alive and they're trying to survive and they are really good at adapting to whatever environment they happen to be in. And so, yeah, you should definitely have respect for them. How the heck did you find out that this was the case, that these electrical impulses you associated with animal brains, uh, that something similar was going on with these bacteria, again, specifically Salmonella and uh, E. coli? So actually it was a whole lot of luck. So, um, at the beginning of the project, when I was in my postdoc lab at, uh, in the lab of Adam Cohen at Harvard, uh, we were we wanted to be neuroscientists actually, and so we were looking for ways to measure voltage, these electrical impulses inside of neurons. And again, just through random chance, I happened to be doing some initial trial experiments in bacteria since they're really easy to grow, um, and we looked at them under the microscope and saw that they were blinking. And so really it was just fortuitous that we happened to find the, the bacteria doing this. Otherwise, we might have just been mere neuroscientists instead of uh, really studying microbiology. When you say blinking, just put a finer point on that. Oh, yeah. So um, the, what we had set out to make was an indicator that would change the the amount of light that gives off it. So when you watch a movie of a neuron, um, you could record the voltage by just seeing how much light it was giving off. Huh. Um, and so in this way, you could record uh, the voltage inside of neurons just under a microscope by taking a movie. And this is in contrast to the traditional way to measure voltage where you might stick a wire in something. So Inside of your computer mouse, um, if you want to record the voltage, you would stick a wire um, and then record the voltage. But of course, neurons don't like having wires stuck inside of them. And so that's why we were trying to uh, find alternative ways um, through light-based measurements. And, and just to be clear, this is the layman coming out in me. These are the <laughs> neurons in the bacteria? No. Oh, sorry. No. No. So, uh, we had, the original project that we had set out to do yeah, was that was neurological study. research. Yeah, was yes. neuroscientists. Um, okay. But and then we we just happened to find the same sort of activity in bacteria. Okay. Yes. So bacteria don't have neurons, Ryan. I can hear scientists perhaps across Colorado rolling their <laughs> eyes at that. Uh, no, no, no problem at all. Yeah. Sorry. It's, okay. uh, <laughs> you know, it's conflating a lot of different fields and I get confused a lot too. So the idea, I guess, is that if you can somehow block this ability of bacteria to feel, to sense mm -hmm. their environments, and to attach, you know, to my stomach lining or something, uh, that, that that would be a big deal in preventing food poisoning. Yeah, that's the exact uh, pathway that we're trying to go down now is exactly like you said. So if we can find a drug that can block their ability to feel by blocking these uh, electrical impulses, uh, we might be able to, you know, cut their hands off in essence so that they don't know that they have attached to your delicious gut lining. Uh, and so that might slow the course of infection. And we think this is actually particularly in 
interesting way to go because traditional antibiotics, the antibiotic that you might get from the pharmacy, uh, they the bacteria have a strong desire to evolve resistance to that because yeah. the, an- the traditional antibiotics kill bacteria. Whereas if we can just prevent them from feeling, that might slow the course of infection, but they might not really need to evolve away from that because they're still going to be alive. And so we might think it's a, a novel uh, class of preventing infection inside of people. Fascinating. But of course, there's good bacteria in my gut as well. So the the point would be to sort of turn off the the sensing ability of the bad ones without doing the same to the good ones. And, and when I take an antibiotic, for instance, it kills the good and the bad. Right. Yeah. The antibiotic is the nuclear option. It wipes out everything inside of your stomach. Um, and of course, there, there's lots of problems, which is why they tell you to eat yogurt uh, after you take antibiotics. Right. But this, this might be a more gentle alternative. So it's, it wouldn't be something that you give to someone who is seriously sick or in sepsis. But, you know, for you or me, who is reasonably healthy but happens to get food poisoning, this might be a way to help mitigate some of the effects of that. And of course, the thousand uh, dollar question is, how far off is such a drug? <laughs> um, so in lab right now, we are we're going through screening for them. And so I will say that the uh, the lifetime for drug development is about 10 years. So okay. give me about 10 years and <laughs> I'll, I'll have something for you. <laughs> You're asking me to be patient. Joel, thank you so much for being with us and walking us through this so beautifully. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Joel Kralsch is an assistant professor of biology at CU Boulder. He's studying electronic activity in bacteria, for which I have now much more respect. And this is the latest in our series, Beta Test, about scientific discovery in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a new page-turner from novelist Eric Story called A Promise to Kill. Story grew up in Rangeley, Colorado, spent his summers in the wilderness near Glenwood Springs. And like his debut, this second novel is set in the American West and revolves around a drifter named Clyde Barr. Let's listen back to my interview about his first book, Nothing Short of Dying. It takes readers all over Colorado's western slope— on a hunt for drug dealers who've kidnapped the main character's sister. Eric Story spoke to me last year. Eric, welcome to the program. That's great to be here. So in the first few pages, we learned that this main character, Clyde Barr, was in prison. His family isn't terribly fond of him, uh, but one of his sisters is actually an outcast too, and uh, the two were abused as kids. Now that sister is in trouble and needs Clyde's help. It's a lot happening in the first few pages. What went into packing so much into so so few pages? Well, a lot of rewrites <laughs> is actually how that happened. You want the a lot of action in the beginning to hook most of the readers of this genre anyway, but when you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, eventually you get to that condensed action, I think. And so it's about stripping words, getting the text more and more bare and more and more impactful. Yes, it is. Do you like rewriting or do you find it frustrating? I actually really like it. You get That's what's so much fun about writing is that you have all these chances to do it right. You can do it again and again and again until it's perfect. Until, until as it's close perfect. to perfect as you're going to get it. <laughs> How do you, what is your barometer for perfect? How do you know when to stop? 
uh, we'll probably want to get sick of it after like the 50th rewrite. I stop because there really isn't, it really is no perfect. You can't. You, all, you always want to tweak one more word or switch it for a different one at, at some point. Is it really 50 times that you rewrite? Uh, some, some scenes, yes. <laughs> and in between, do you have people read or is it entirely your own judgment about when it's perfect? I have uh, beta readers. Uh, usually after like the second draft, I'll, I'll write just the story out for me and then clean it up and then have people read it and tell me what's wrong, what they think is wrong. And then I'll rewrite for me again and then put it back out there for the beta readers. I didn't know there was a term for it, beta readers. And are those like friends of yours or people you hire? A friends. My wife is the, the ultimate beta reader. She gets it the first look. But then, yeah, there's other friends. Does she like doing it? I think so. You'd have to ask her. <laughs> she seems to be. She she seems to be to enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. She seems to. But she's generous enough to do it. One reviewer yes. describes your protagonist Clyde Barr this way: Picture Chuck Norris playing a sort of MacGyver renegade with a dodgy past, and another calls Clyde Barr a gallant idiot. <laughs> how, how would how would you describe him? Uh, both are pretty apt, I guess. <laughs> He's a wandering adventurer that has been trying to do good his whole well, is trying to help those that need help. I wouldn't say it's it's good in his mind, but other people don't see it that way. The first description is actually one of my favorite ones: the MacGyver, the wilderness wilderness MacGyver, Chuck Norris action figure almost. There's more to it when you read the book. There's actually, like, you know, personality, but but that is the way he comes across to a lot of people. Are you that way, you know, very adept in, in the wilderness? I'm decent. I prefer to be out there. This is all very strange. This, I'm in a small room surrounded by computers and electronics. It's very, very different. There in our studio in Grand Junction. I wonder if there's more than the studio that's different. Is Is there something that feels different about this sort of literary world um, because I, you're, you're new to it. Yeah, everything about it is very strange. I'm forced to ex, you know, expand my my knowledge of the world because there's much more travel and talking to people and speaking in front of people is all very new when I spend most of my time either behind a keyboard or out in the middle of nowhere. Actually, it's before I had to go on book tour, spent two summers you know, sleeping in a tent in a campground. So this is a big shift. Is it hard to to do interviews like this? Yeah, it's very, it's not like painful, but it's very uh, odd. It's different. It's a new experience for me. I remember um, years ago interviewing a really brilliant investigative reporter, and he had a, a real hard time articulating thoughts in speech, in part because he's able to craft words so carefully when he writes and he wants to do the same thing when he speaks. And so he took a, a long time and there were pauses. And I wonder if, if that ability to write and rewrite, you know, up to 50 times is actually what you yearn for in, in the kind of communication we're having. Do you think there's a parallel there? Oh, absolutely. I'd much rather, you know, take your question figure it out for, uh, you know, a couple of minutes, right? And then oh, that wasn't good enough and start, start over. And then, you know, on the third or fourth, hand you back uh, my answer under the door, you know, that's <laughs> kind of how, how writers work usually. Well, I'm very grateful you've joined us. I think it's very generous. And, and back to Clyde Barr, your main character. I think he too is a man of few words. 
What do you think motivates him? You, you say that he thinks he's doing right. It doesn't always turn out that way. But what, what is his motivation? Well, his biggest motivation is to help those that are getting picked on, I guess would be the simplest way to put it. So sometimes when he does that, the people getting picked on, there's more to it. You know, if, if it's a conflict, say, in Africa that he fought in, there's it's a lot bigger politically and he gets himself even more trouble. He tries to simplify the world, I think, and that's what gets him in, in some of these predicaments that makes him a gallant idiot, as you know, they said. <laughs> yes, the gallant idiot. That was another reviewer's description of him. You also have this terrifying character named Zeke, someone that Clyde Barr met in prison. How did you dream Zeke up? That he was kind of an amalgamation of all these people I've met uh, when I've worked these you know, seasonal jobs out in the boonies. He's the mix of all the ones that I've worked with that scared me. There's some very <laughs> crazy people out there that they spend so much time out alone in the wilderness that they become a little off. And so I just put all those together and made this lunatic mountain man. You have guided sled dogs yourself in the past, guided horse trips, worked as a ranch hand, all sorts of odd jobs. Mm. What is it about these folks that you have met that's unhinged? You know, um, that they just can't relate to people, that they're paranoid or what? Uh, Both and then more. It's, It's almost a complete break from societal reality they, they they're fine most of the time if they're surrounded by trees and rocks but when they're they've broken away from people and they don't they have no way to relate with them anymore so it makes them look some of them dangerous around other humans eric's story your own story is really intoxicating i read that you used your last nine dollars to send a manuscript of this book to the literary agent that's true. It was the last $9 in our checking account that month. We were living paycheck to paycheck. It was a long shot, but it, it paid off. And it was actually the, the first the, the 10 pages and a query letter. And then I got the call back from Lee Child's agent, who was interested and eventually took me on. Yeah, so this is a big name in the publishing world, Lee Child's, right? Because... Um, um, the Jack Creature. Yeah. yeah, Jack Reacher, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So are you still working odd jobs? I work summer seasonally, yes. And then right in the winter. Who encouraged you to send the manuscript? Was that you? Was that your own gumption or what? No, that was my wife. I've, <laughs> I sent out a bunch on my own and got so many rejections. I lost track at 50. Well, I stopped writing them down on the spreadsheet at 50 rejections. And then my wife says there were more. But she eventually, I was about to give up, and eventually she pushed me into uh, just sending it out to my uh, my dream agent, somebody that maybe represents somebody with similar characters or that writes similar characters. And I, that's when we spent the last $9 to send it out to Darley. It was our last shot, pretty much. You talked with Westward about how getting this book deal actually made life a bit uncomfortable in the small town where you were living, Rangeley because your neighbors had recently gotten laid off from work in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a rough time for most people in that industry. And I was trying to, you know, not brag. <laughs> I didn't want to upset anybody, but it was a little uncomfortable. Because they were aware of your success? Yes. Oh. And, it's, it was, and it's a really hard time there. You've uh, got a Google alert so that you see all the reviews, good and bad? 
Nothing Short of Dying was included in a New York Times book review list of the latest and best in crime fiction. But you also got this from Kirkus. Their review said that the novel moves along well enough, but the way it strings together violent action scenes has a paint-by-numbers quality. The review also called the dialogue flat. What do you do with bad reviews? I try to ignore them. And, I, and like Kirkus especially is usually rough for a lot of people. But the, the things that they say that are negative, I'll try to keep in the back of my mind. I'm not going to directly go after those flaws, but I'll keep it in mind while I'm writing the next book. That is author Eric's story, and his next book is out. It's called A Promise to Kill. You can read the chapter of his first, Nothing Short of Dying, at cprnews.org. Special thanks today to Brady McNellis, Anthony Cotton, and Stephanie Wolf. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, thanks for spending time with us.